It's Monday, May 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Joe Biden reached his 100 days in office this past week, and we know where Republicans stand on his agenda. But what about the progressive wing of his own party? The news so far is good. They feel heard and are happy with some of his proposals, although the big worry is having a plan to push anything through a divided Congress. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this, what to expect from the Rudy Giuliani investigation, and more celebrities running for office. Next, the coronavirus pandemic is still ongoing, but we have gotten parts of it under control. Vaccines are being administered, and thanks to the work of various countries, we have treatments that can help people spare some of the most severe infections. One such example is the UK. Not so much a pandemic success story, but their COVID-19 trials were. Through their recovery trial project, they were able to mobilize a massive clinical trial that tested various treatments and ultimately found a cheap and widely used steroid that became key in treating the virus. And it saved an estimated 1 million lives worldwide. Dylan Scott, senior correspondent at Vox, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I stand here tonight one day shy of the 100th day of my administration. 100 days since I took the oath of office and lifted my hand off our family Bible and inherited a nation we all did that was in crisis. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We've seen the first 100 days of Biden's presidency already. He just unveiled another big spending plan. This is the American Families Plan. He's well on his way. We know how Republicans feel about all of it. Um, But your colleagues had a a pretty interesting piece about how progressives in the Democratic Party are feeling about Biden. You know, for a long time, there was a lot of worries about what he'd do. You know, they, they consider him kind of an institutionalist, a moderate. Would he, you know, do anything for their agenda? Uh, so what are they saying? What are they seeing in President Biden? That's right. We had a great story from two of our reporters, Alex Seitzwald and Sahil Kapoor, taking a look at how progressives really were unhappy with Biden as the nominee. They thought he was just not going to do enough. And it turns out 100 days into his administration, they're really happy with what they've gotten so far. The COVID stimulus package they felt was very progressive. And then you look at some of the other proposals he's making, things like immigration, things like his infrastructure and job package, things like his family plan that he he rolled out at his address to Congress, they feel like it has a lot of liberal ideals and proposals in it. And I think also really important, they feel like Biden is listening to him. If they call, if they ask for something, they may not get it, but they feel like there's a line of communication there. And then he's available to hear their point of view, let them make their case as he's weighing all of these different factions and elements of the party. Yeah, I think one of the quotes from the lawmakers was that Biden told him, keep pushing, keep making us honest and and that that resonates with them you know they felt like yeah they have that line of communication let's see how far we can go so i mean that's great right i don't know how well that that kind of news will play on the other side right because they'll pin him more as a leftist but the big worry that a lot of them still have is you know he made made a lot of promises but how do you make it happen with the makeup of congress and the way the senate is it's still going to be tough do they even have a plan to get there your point is great. You know, there's going to be some apprehension from the other side about is he too liberal? 
But we did see some polling on his 100 days, a great story also from Sahil, um, one of our reporters, about how America still views Biden as quite moderate. In fact, they view him more more as a moderate than they did at Obama at this point in his administration. So I think that there's still that that give and take. And people know Joe Biden. He's not done anything that yeah. really surprises <laughs> them. And that is that has helped. This past week, we also saw Rudy Giuliani, his apartment, his office get raided by the FBI. They, they're trying to see if there's any involvement he had with helping to oust the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. We saw him do the media rounds. We saw his son do the media rounds uh, all in his defense. What are we expecting to see about uh, out of this investigation? Yeah, we saw the FBI show up and request several pieces of electronics from Rudy Giuliani's apartment and his office. They asked for cell phones. They asked for laptops. And this was really a sign that this investigation into Giuliani that started under the Trump administration continues. And I think that we understand from sources that they are investigating whether or not he broke lobbying laws, which are generally the kind of things that don't make big headlines. But the idea that he was lobbying or requesting things from the government, maybe from President Trump himself on the behalf of his clients without registering, which is a federal crime. And I think this is just not going to go away. And there's a lot of sort of attention in there, I think, in the Biden administration. Biden told my colleague Craig Melvin in an interview on Thursday that he was not made aware or briefed about the Giuliani raid before it happened. And I think that he's trying to stay as far away from it as he possibly can, since this is something that could continue. Lastly, for this week, I just wanted to talk about a couple pieces I've been seeing all floating around. Uh, you know, some are calling it the Trump effect, but it's been happening for a long time. Celebrities running for office. Uh, obviously, we saw Ronald Reagan. We saw Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right now, we see Caitlyn Jenner for uh, running for governor in California. Matthew McConaughey, there's buzz about him. You know, they have massive fan bases, not a lot of political experience or experience in office. Um, so those times can be difficult, right? Running huge states. Um, so what do, we, what do we can expect out of this? Yeah, we're seeing another round of celebrity candidates. And like you said, this isn't new. We've seen celebrities running for office before. Matthew McConaughey has been in Texas for a while. He works at the University of Texas as an adjunct professor. So he's been trying to sort of build his credentials there. Caitlyn Jenner doesn't have quite the government experience, but has been outspoken, although we saw just immediate criticism of her for having supported Donald Trump uh, would be very difficult to get elected, I think, in California because of that. But they're trying to find ways. And I think that Trump and others have sort of set a precedent that you can come into politics without any government experience. And we're seeing, I do think that Trump, because he struggled so much to get anything done in that time period, he was president, is maybe making it a little bit harder for these folks. But I don't think these are the last of the celebrities right. we're going to see running for office. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It looks like dexamethasone does work for right. severely ill patients. They seem to be dying less frequently. And so they wrote up what they knew. They released it. And I mean, it literally seems like in a matter of hours in the UK, and I think almost as quickly in the rest of the world, dexamethasone became a part of the standard of care for COVID-19 for severely ill patients. Joining us now is Dylan Scott, senior correspondent at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Dylan. Thanks for having me. There at Vox right now, you guys have a series going on. It's called the Pandemic Playbook, and you're exploring successes and setbacks of countries around the world in combating COVID-19. 
And now that we kind of have this moment to breathe a little bit, now that more vaccines are getting out there and uh, in some parts cases are going down, you know, it's a great opportunity to look back at kind of how we got here. Because I remember at the peak of the pandemic, we're trying to figure out how to control this. Really, we were throwing everything at we could as as far as treatments go. Uh, we were throwing everything everything we could at COVID to see what would work. And the UK is a particular success story with this in the form of their recovery trials. The way their national health system is set up, they were able to get a lot of hospitals on board with this and start testing out different treatments to see what would work. And they had two big successes in uh, dexamethasone, which is the steroid that is widely available and used. And then the other one, which I know I'm going to butcher the name, is tocilizumab, I want to say. <laughs> um, I, I can't do any better yeah. than that. So, uh, so, Dylan, tell us a little bit about how the UK really stepped up with this program and helped us find some of these treatments. Yeah. So thank you for introducing the project. And the idea that we had behind it was it'd be really hard to try to look around the world and figure out who had the best overall COVID-19 response. Because like, how, how would you really measure that? And so what we decided to do instead was look at countries that had excelled in a particular way. And the UK, I think, is a good example of this because like they have actually, in a plenty of ways, they have struggled during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, they have nearly as high per capita deaths and cases as any country in the world, but they have really stood out in medical research and specifically in researching potential COVID-19 treatments. So like you say, you know, last spring, nobody knew would work on COVID-19. This was a totally new disease. There was no existing treatment plan. Hospitals and nurses and doctors were kind of making it up on the fly. So very early on in February, actually, there was a researcher at Oxford University, Martin Landre, who kind of saw this coming. You know, there were still only 20 cases in the UK at the time, but, you know, it was obvious that that number would soon grow by a lot. And of course it did. And so he was like, all right, we need to figure out what treatments work, but we need to do it in a kind of scientifically rigorous way. You know, he was somebody his whole life, his work had been like figuring out how to do big trials, big clinical trials, you know, using big data to try to answer really simple questions. And so he thought that that was a model that could work during COVID-19. Because like at the end of the day, you just want to figure out is the patient living or is the patient dying? Like that's the most important thing when you're in the middle of an emergency. And so he started brainstorming this a little bit, and he reached out to somebody who runs a big medical charity in the UK. And this person advised him to get in touch with another researcher named Peter Horby. And Peter has actually been, for a long time, all the way back to the first SARS crisis at the beginning of the 2000s, he has been thinking about a, a related but different problem, which is like, how do we run clinical trials in the middle of a crisis? You know, that's not a very easy thing to do. The whole process tends to move really slowly. You know, you gave the example of in prior outbreaks of, you know, it would take like three weeks to draft a plan for a clinical trial. And then it would sit in front of an ethics board for two more weeks. And suddenly, like, you know, a couple months have gone by and you don't really know anything more than you did before. And so those two got together and they thought, all right, how can we set up a really big trial that just tries to answer a really simple question, which treatments help patients survive COVID-19? And how can we do it in a way that would be as scientifically rigorous as we can do under the circumstances. Right. And so they came up with a model of how to do that. And then they kind of took their pitch to the NHS, which, as I imagine people know, but in case they don't, the UK has a single payer 
government-run healthcare system where not only is everybody insured by the government, but the vast majority of hospitals are owned by the government, run by the government. You know, doctors are employees of the government. So it's this unified health system. And that was really appealing to them because it's like, all right, like we, you know, here in the U.S., if you wanted to run a trial like that, you'd have to like get a bunch of different hospital systems to coordinate with each other and agree to share data and all this kind of bureaucratic, all these bureaucratic obstacles would stand in your way. With the recovery trial, this program that they had dreamed up, they basically took the pitch to the heads because Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and England have their own kind of NHS systems, but even though they're all connected. And so they took this pitch to them and said like, hey, we think we've got an idea about how to do this. Would you all be interested? And, you know, this again was when the pandemic was really starting to take off. NHS said yes. And this was about maybe, maybe a week period from when they first met to when they were like drafting a proposal and pitching (laughs) NHS on it. And NHS was like, that sounds great. They sent out a letter to all of the hospitals in the country saying like, we think this is really important um, and we'd really like you to participate. And by the end of it, today, you know, to date, they have enrolled more than 35,000 patients across 175 hospitals in these clinical trials. And what that's allowed them to do is like, you know, there have been some trials attempted in the U.S., but those trials were maybe enrolling like a couple hundred people. But like for the dexamethasone trial, you had thousands of patients. They had really big data sets to work with. So as soon as June of 2020, they were able to identify that, hey, it looks like dexamethasone does work for severely ill patients. They seem to be dying less frequently. And so they wrote up what they knew. They released it. And I mean, it literally seems like in a matter of hours in the UK, and I think almost as quickly in the rest of the world, dexamethasone became a part of the standard of care for COVID-19 for severely ill patients. And there was actually an estimate that just came out in March from the UK government that projected that about 1 million lives had been saved because of the use of dexamethasone around the world. So it's really a kind of stunning achievement in medical research to set up a trial this big, this quickly to get results that fast and for people to have the confidence in it that it became the standard of care all over the world in just a matter of months from the beginning of this trial getting dreamed up. And I remember when they said, you know, hey, this widely available, very cheap steroid dexamethasone could be a game changer, at least right now, while we were still heads were spinning everywhere trying to figure out how to treat this. And I remember when that came out, and you're right, in the US, United States, they did a, an emergency use authorization. Right away, they cleared it, and boom, right away, we we're starting to put that into treatment. So in the end, I mean, they tried out nine repurposed drugs. They did a convalescent plasma one and then a, a, an antibody cocktail. But this was the successes that they came out with, dexamethasone and the other one, tocilizumab. Excuse me for butchering that. Yes, yeah. And and those often are used together in treatment. The other big part of this, you know, you spoke about the collaboration between all the hospitals and everybody jumping on board, but the public also there in the UK, very willing to be part of these trials as well to help figure out what to do with it. And that's one of those things where, you know, you wonder how much, you know, the NHS is obviously just kind of baked into the social fabric of the UK and has been for a long time. And and people there love it for the most part, though there are certainly issues that come up. 
Uh, and so you wonder, you know, it's just having that level of trust between the patients and the health system. You wonder how much that kind of created this kind of buy-in for patients. And I, I certainly wonder, I hope, but I do wonder how, whether we'd get the same kind of cooperation in the U.S. with our fractured health system and the level of distrust we tend to have in institutions here. But yeah, to your point, I mean, it was funny. I, I talked to a patient who participated in the TOC, oh, that's just what I'm going to call it, trial. And, you know, he was... <laughs> pretty sick. He was on he was on oxygen at the hospital. And to him, it was like, it's a no brainer. Like, you know, of you know, I'm sitting here, I'm sick, I feel horrible. You guys think you've got something that might make me feel better Then of course, I'm going to do it. You know, it sounded like he didn't think too much about it. It's not like he was trying to be an altruist or anything like that. It was just like, yeah, sure, that makes sense to me. And I did think it was interesting, you know, one of the things you couldn't plan, but that worked out really nicely was how quickly that dexamethasone result came in. Because I talked to one of the nurses who's administering the trial at a, at a hospital in Cornwall. And she said, you know, it was such a relief to her and just became so much easier to kind of pitch patients on the recovery trial because she could point to dexamethasone and say, like, through this program, we have already found something that works that's going to hopefully get you out of the hospital quicker and, and certainly make sure that you survive COVID-19. So we've already got that. We've already figured out one thing, and now we're trying to test all this other stuff to see if it would help. You know, would you like to participate? And so I think having that kind of proof point of like, this can work, like we can find stuff if, if people are willing to cooperate and take part, really probably proved valuable over the rest of the year because, of course, they have, as you said, they've continued to try more treatments. They right. still have a trial going now for the antibody cocktail that you mentioned. And it doesn't seem like they've had any trouble at all getting patients to enroll. The only issue, which is the best possible problem to have, is that, you know, the UK has done pretty well on vaccinations. And so the number of hospitalizations has been going down, which means there's less patients available to yeah. participate in the trial. But like, if that's the problem that we're dealing with, then nothing could be better, right? Right. And, and the last thing, just to kind of that I wanted to, to focus on briefly, is these recovery trials were big and very simple. So as you mentioned, are people dying? Yes or no? Those are the simple questions. Some of the, the more precise things, you know, is would it be good for these subgroups, these people that have certain ailments? You don't really get to explore that that much, but at least in the quickness of it, in the emergency mode, we were able to get some good news out of all of it. I mean, there were undoubtedly some trade-offs. You lose some of that kind of refinement in the results because, yeah, you're, like, you're just enrolling whoever happens to show up at the hospital. You know, you do have kind of a control group. You set one group aside as a control group. You treat the other group so you compare the two of those. But, like, that's about as far as, as it can go in terms of turning this into a truly random controlled experiment. And so, yeah, you're a little bit at the whim of whatever patients happen to show up. It's hard to, yeah, the Peter Horby gave the example of somebody at WHO asking about giving toke to a 70-year-old diabetic. And he was like, I can't answer that question. We did not study that specific subpopulation. And so that is the sacrifice you make. That's a trade-off you make. I think some of the people who've been, if not totally critical, at least maybe a little like, all right, let's, let's slow down and try to make sure that we're really confident about these results. Some of those people have certainly said, like, we need to be careful about how we present these results. We need to be transparent about what some of the uncertainty is. But even those folks will say, like, in the middle of an emergency, this is about as good of a program as we could have hoped to set up. You know, right. they use words like stellar to describe yeah. it. So, it, it, you know, I'm yet to really come across anybody who thinks like this is not a model for how we should handle treatment research during the next pandemic. Dylan Scott, senior correspondent at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.